I'm Dr. Anjali Bagra, Medical Director of Mayo Clinic's Office of Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity. And I'm Barbara Jordan, Administrator of Mayo Clinic's Office of Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity. And, and we, we are proud to present the Rise for Equity podcast. Welcome to Mayo Clinic's Rise for Equity podcast. I'm the host, Lee Hawkins, and our guest today is Dr. Felicity Enders, who is a professor of biostatistics at Mayo Clinic, and a great deal of her work focuses on educating researchers, breaking important new ground in the areas of both education and diversity, with emphasis on inclusion and diversity in research and the collection of data. Welcome to you. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Lee. It is a great pleasure to be here today. All right. I must admit, you're the first real live biostatistician I've ever met. Can you explain what biostatistics is? So this is actually not something I'm great at explaining. I tend to get pretty technical. My husband has trained me over the years to say, I research the numbers for medical research. And so all that stuff behind the scenes that helps give you the answers that you see in the press or in medical research papers. And you mentioned the press. You know, in the press, we constantly see, well, not constantly, but every couple months, there will be something that comes out about um, disparities in medicine and healthcare, racial disparities primarily, gender disparities as well. Um, and a lot of this can become disheartening over time. And one of the things that you and I have spoken about is the fact that we're getting better at identifying the problems and the challenge is really about the outcomes and improving the, and bringing about solutions. That is absolutely correct. So we're getting better and better data all the time. We're really seeing improved measurement. We have amazing imaging. But really what we're seeing is we have more clarity of the problem, but we're not seeing that in terms of solutions for health equity. And we are seeing really tremendous differences in health, primarily by race, but also by other factors. And you know, there's a lot of people working on this problem from many different angles. It's a big nut to crack. One of the issues that I see is that this vast increase in data that we see is data about what's happening with someone right now in their life. You know, we have imaging, we have little sensors on our, on our wrists that, that track how we're doing, and it's a lot of data in the now, but we're not looking back over someone's lifetime to see what may be impacting what's happening in their health today. And that's really important because we see in research that people who have a lot of stress over their lifetime can have accelerated biological aging, meaning that their bodies at the cellular level are aging faster, and that leads to chronic health diseases that really can impact lives and experiences and bring about premature death. And it's very problematic. Are we even collecting data historically over a person's lifetime? That's a great question. Currently, we're not really doing that. If you have a physician who has the time 
they're trying to get a medical history. But that may not include the history of things that have happened outside of the person's medical experiences that could impact their stress over their lifetime. Now, there are ways to measure accelerated aging, but they're invasive and they're expensive. And things that are invasive and expensive that don't affect everyone, we're not going to measure. But my work has been, just over the past year, trying to develop survey measures to estimate someone's accelerated biological aging by estimating how much stress they have been under over the course of their life. So this is a lot like what we do in smoking research. In smoking research, you don't just ask, does someone smoke, yes or no? You also ask, uh, how many packs of cigarettes do they smoke per day? And when did they start smoking? How many years have they been smoking over their lifetime? And that gives you a measure of the accumulated impact of tobacco on their health. This is the same idea, but for stress and also for discrimination. In some ways now, I think stress is perhaps better because there's so many sources of discrimination that are not always something that the person can perceive. So when we talk about structural racism, the infrastructure that may be very different based on where someone lives, that is something that someone feels as a stressor, but they may not think about that as discrimination and it's not being done personally to them, but it certainly causes a source of stress in their life. And of course, there's the old saying, when the majority population catches a cold, people of color catch pneumonia, right? And so is this disproportionately affecting people of color? Yes. So there is work called the weathering hypothesis, which basically says that in aggregate, when you look by race, part of what you're seeing for the differences in health are the differences in accelerated biological aging that are brought about by additional stress that we see by race, but is really due to factors in someone's life caused by societal issues that differ by race. Mm -hmm. And we talked earlier about the adverse childhood experiences study, which shows that if a person has had four or five adverse childhood experiences over time, it can actually shorten life expectancy by 20 years and increase the likelihood that they could have cancer, diabetes, or heart disease. And so when I hear you speaking, it really makes me wonder if doctors even have this kind of conversation that would need to be had to identify the potential people who are at risk. And we you asked me to talk about my experience with my dad, which was one in which I spoke at his funeral about the long-term effect of Jim Crow that ultimately, I believe, played a role in his, his uh, death because of the the, the chronic stress over the years. And when that speech was given, the doctor who treated him and decided not to, um, not to identify some blockages that were in his arteries by testing him with, with a stress test was in the audience. And we actually met at the end. And one of the questions I asked was, did you talk to him about his childhood? That is so powerful. You're, you're absolutely right. So you're seeing in real time that that stress of, of Jim Crow and other factors that continue to this day really do have an impact on health. And you saw that in just your gut reaction 
But I think what you're pointing out is that the doctor didn't know your father well enough yeah. to identify those stressors as potential impacts to follow up on in terms of assessing his potential for heart damage. That's a really big deal. And so, so that's exactly where I want to go. I want you to imagine, I know that's kind of hard because he's already passed, but imagine that that doctor had had just a simple survey that he filled out at some point that said, this man has had a lot of exposure to stress over his lifetime. He's therefore at risk for accelerated biological aging. And therefore we should think about doing extra testing for the following X, Y, and Z. And we don't totally know what those are yet, but heart damage is certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. That would change how she thinks about treating him and testing him and looking for problems. That's exactly where we wanna go with this. Wow, and so this really has potentially sweeping implications for marginalized people, right? Because if we can get this right, then we could start to do a better job of diagnosis and prevention. Absolutely, and it also has the potential to help overcome unconscious bias in healthcare workers, right? Healthcare workers are people too. Unconscious bias is, is something that we all carry from having been in this society for our whole lives. It's coming from the society, it's not intentional, it actually is unconscious. But when you have unconscious bias towards a particular group and you are stressed and pressed for time, you're much more likely to have different behavior towards that group and perhaps minimize their risk. And healthcare workers are, are always stressed and pressed for time. Exactly. <laughs> and so imagine if, if they had something that was cueing them, wait a minute, this person who's really at risk, let's think about this differently, that might help overcome that un unconscious bias. But it actually requires a, an industry shift, right? Even at the training level from the beginning. Yes. Uh, so there is extensive research now showing misconceptions among medical students as well as among regular people in the lay public about people's ability to withstand pain and have other factors within medicine that differ by the race of the patient. So there was a study showing that medical students thought that black patients had thicker skin, would not be able to feel pain. And that, that's a major misconception. That really does need to be addressed. And people are working on that in medical school training now to really try and overcome those misconceptions early on. But it takes a lot of repetition because it's, it's something that people are coming in with. They're not being taught that in medical school, certainly, but they're, you're trying to overcome something that they have had unconscious knowledge of that was mistaken. And it's important to know how that manifests actually in the treatment room because that means that there's a higher likelihood that that person who needs pain medication is not going to be prescribed it because or as much because of this unconscious bias that this healthcare worker has internalized. Absolutely. So so pain may get ignored, people may actually have totally different treatment plans and that can really impact how, outcomes. So it's not just pain, it's actually people dying sooner in part because of treatment as well as 
other factors like accelerated aging. Or people reaching the conclusion that, well, maybe this person really isn't as sick as they say they are. Yes, absolutely. All of this is really interesting. How did you even get into biostatistics? And when you got into it, I'll ask this later, but just be thinking about when you got into it, did you expect that you would be able to have such an impact on diversity inclusion? That's a great question. I, I did not know I was going to go into biostatistics, and I certainly didn't know I would wind up in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I would say my background is really framed by my parents. I'm biracial. My mother is black. My father is white. My mother's family, for many generations, has really pushed education, that you need to get as much education in whatever field you're going to go into as far as you can, because that's what opens doors. My father's family, in his generation, almost everyone grew up within about two blocks of one another in a very small town. A lot of them went on and did get significant education, but there wasn't that same impetus that you have to do that. Now, because of my mother's family, I, I had an advantage that I just assumed that I would be going to college. And that gives you a big advantage. Anytime you're not sure that you're gonna do something, sometimes you close the door for yourself. And so that door I just assumed I would be doing, and that, that's a big advantage. But I didn't have that same assumption when it came to graduate school. So I was not a straight-A student in college. And because of that, I didn't apply to PhD programs when I thought that that's probably what I wanted to do. Instead, I applied to a Master of Public Health program with the intent that I would do that and, and do well enough that I could get into a PhD program. So I did close that first door for myself, but I, I did the Master of Public Health program, and I was intending to do a PhD in epidemiology. And I was pretty excited about that. But along the way, I had become an engaged student in that Master of Public Health program. Now, I was not an engaged student in college. I was not the person asking questions. I was not the person talking to professors, but I was in the master's degree. And because I was an engaged student, I was the one, I was asking questions all the time. Sometimes people would pass me notes to ask me to ask a question because they were afraid <laughs> to ask a question. I love that, that's awesome. It was, it was quite something I had changed my persona and I was getting to know the professors. My statistics professor, Scott Zeger, was amazing. And I would be emailing him while I was working on a homework assignment and saying, hey, I got stuck at this spot. What should I think about next? And this would be happening at like 3 in the morning because I was in graduate school and I was awake at 3 in the morning, unlike now. And, <laughs> and he would email back. I don't know why he was awake at 3 in the morning. That's a separate question. but. But because I was an engaged student, when I asked him for a letter of recommendation for a PhD in epidemiology, he said, sure, but would you consider a PhD in biostatistics? So how did you get to that point? Did you actually know that you were going to be doing the PhD in epidemiology? Absolutely not, right? So, so I knew by the time I was in college that I liked science, I kind of liked math, but I couldn't see how we were going to apply it. And so I didn't actually go very far in math. But I was testing the waters with different things in science. And that did not show me what I wanted to do. 
Instead, it showed me what I didn't like. I tried this thing, didn't like it, did another summer thing, didn't like that either. That winds up narrowing the window of what I was doing and that led me towards a general realm of epidemiology, statistics, research that was very important. And I think people come in thinking that someone like me knew what they were gonna do all along. Absolutely did not know. What kid is sitting at home right now saying, I wanna be a biostatistician? I mean, it isn't something that people generally think about, or maybe it is. No, it's, it's not generally known, right? So yeah. that's, that's a problem. We teach people skills, but we don't teach, teach people what career opportunities there are. There are now AP statistics courses, advanced placement statistics courses in some high schools, but that's not biostatistics and it doesn't show you the wealth of what you can do with biostatistics. You're really just doing tests, you're not doing research. So if I were advising someone, I would say first, keep going in math. It's important to keep going in math. I actually didn't go far enough I had to take a summer course at a community college before that PhD program to get that last course that I hadn't done. But also, statistics is not just math, it's also logic. And biostatistics involves a lot of learning about research. We really don't do a good job of teaching people about research and what happens in research in school. And so you have to look for other opportunities. There are now a lot of internship programs that are available for people to do in summers, in a gap year. And it used to be that those internship programs were almost all unpaid. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, people have now realized that that is a huge barrier to bringing people into the field. And this is across all of research. And so because of that, Many, many of those internships now are paid and available. And uh, actually at Mayo, we have summer internships. If you just look up Mayo Clinic summer internship, you'll find a whole bunch of programs, many of which are paid. And that can provide an opportunity to learn about research, which can involve learning what you don't like as well, to narrow that field and figure out which aspect of research you do like. What was the career you thought you were getting into and what did it turn out to be? By the time I was finished with the PhD, I knew that I loved teaching statistics to people who were not going to be statisticians. And that's a skill because a lot of, there's actually research showing that a lot of statistics teachers teach statistics like they were taught, meaning like you're teaching someone who's going to be a statistician. And you have to teach differently to teach someone who's not going to be a statistician to, to use these tools. And I really took off in statistics education. I, I taught at Mayo for many, many years, primarily teaching physicians, also numerous graduate students. But after I became a professor of statistics, it became clear to me that there were very few people who were at that level not just at Mayo, but at almost any institution across the country who were black or minority, and that there was a serious gap going on, not just in statistics, but across all of academic medicine. And that I had unknowingly found some tools that helped me along the way. And I learned that I was able to share some of those tools. So part of what I now 
try and train people about is, is what's called hidden curriculum. So that is what an institution needs you to know in order to succeed, but doesn't usually teach you because no one thinks about teaching you, you know, how do you talk to someone or no, you really shouldn't talk to that person or anything else that's, that's not part of our academic training. And that hidden curriculum we can teach to trainees and students, and it really helps people succeed. And there's actually more pieces of it for someone who's diverse to learn because you're learning more things when you're from a different background. But we can also use that to train people who are on the faculty, who may be majority folks who didn't have to go through some of these same hoops. We can teach them to mentor people who are diverse more successfully by learning what folks may be facing. How many women are in this field? Is it gender diverse? In biostatistics, it used to be almost entirely men. Biostatistics has shifted much more to be roughly equal. Theoretical statistics in an academic institution still tends to be much more men than women. It's an interesting question. I'm not sure why there's the difference between those two, but biostatistics has undergone a transition. But across academic medicine, because there is a transition, you see differences in who is in the field at different levels. And because of that, there can be mentoring gaps and that someone who's the senior person who needs to mentor someone who's junior may be very different from them and therefore may have faced different challenges. And so across the area, we want to teach people how to successfully mentor folks who are different. And when you mentor researchers and actually train them uh, around this, obviously you have your experience that you're bringing into from the world outside, and you're aware and you're cognizant of all of these problems we're talking about in terms of the data. Is this something that you're actually teaching people as well? And are your colleagues who are teaching, are they doing the same? There's a push to try and include issues of disparity across research training and medical training. That being said, I think it's different when you have personally experienced it. I give talks on this topic all the time. I think that because there are so few folks who are at this level who have personally experienced it, we need to find ways to spread that experience around better. Right, because otherwise it becomes you doing the training. You can't train everybody, right? I wasn't going to say that, but yes. <laughs> they call that the diversity tax. Absolutely. Um, and unconscious bias, this is a huge thing that affects almost everyone. As a matter of fact, you said everyone has it. I have it. And you, you talked about a test that you took that exposed that. Tell me about that. So this was very upsetting. The, the test you're talking about is the Harvard Implicit Association Test. It's not a perfect test, but it's the only objective measure we have of when you have a bias that you're not aware of, right? Because asking someone isn't going to be enough if they're not aware of it. The idea is the association between a type of person and positive or negatively framed words, where if you have bias towards women being in careers, then you are more quick to associate home life with women and more quick to associate careers with men. 
I carried that bias. I was not aware that I carried that bias. I found it out when I was around mid-career as a woman, and that was pretty upsetting. I also had a bias towards black people, and I'm black. And we all carry a lot of these biases because we're growing up in this country. And so taking the tests, there's actually many of them for different specific biases. Taking the tests gives you an idea of the bias that you probably carry. And that's very important to make you aware. It's hard to change the internal bias. We've had it our whole lives. But you can change your behavior by knowing about that bias. And so by learning about that, you can change your behavior and change the impact that you may have on others. So I've been working on that. I really encourage others to work on that. I think we all have to keep learning. There's so much to do in this space. Wow. Okay. And so how can people get into biostatistics? Because there's probably someone listening and watching right now who's maybe interested in it. First, pretend you were in my mother's family. Get all the education you can. Presume that the doors are going to open and just drive forward. And then you don't have to know what you want to do. You can learn what you want to do by learning what you don't want to do. It's okay to have those negative <laughs> experiences. Good, good they teach you something. And people, as it's happening, it feels terrible. I hated that. I must be terrible at this. You're not terrible. That just wasn't for you. And you move on and you try the next thing. And then last, be that engaged student, the one who's asking the questions, the one who's emailing the professor, right? Because then people notice you and you get a lot more out of the class. So go forth and, and figure out what in research you want to do. You can do anything. Dr. Felicity Enders, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Lee. This was fantastic. And this has been the Mayo Clinic's Rise for Equity podcast. I'm Lee Hawkins. We'll see you next time.